0: Hi, I'm Dale Sherbeck, and welcome to The HQ, a CHA Learning and Healthcare Can podcast serial where we dive into healthcare issues and topics from the perspective of its people and discuss them with those that are leading in the health system. Together, we'll try to unpack these topics and learn what actions are being taken to innovatively solve them today. In this episode, we'll begin to explore the very broad topic of equity, diversity, and inclusion, or EDI, as it is named by some, or EDIR by others that include reconciliation, or EDIA, by others that also include accessibility, or by other names and iterations. EDI and its various elements and permutations and policy changes is increasingly one of the most important topics in Canada, around the world, and in healthcare. Movements like Me Too, Black Lives Matter, Idle No More, and many others continue to draw our attention to abuses of power, social inequities, and discriminatory behaviors and policies, some of which are so deep-seated that they have been termed institutional or structural. While many might agree that things are changing, many others would also say that much more remains and needs to be done. My question, albeit somewhat rhetorical, is why is this so important? What does this change need to look like and what will it impact? And why is this so critical to not only planning for our future health workforce, but to our current health workforce and to the sustainability of our health system? Admittedly, This is a huge, huge topic. And so one I want to tackle over a series of conversations starting with this one today. It is a great honor to have with us today, Dr. Gigi Osler, a dedicated advocate for equity, diversity, and inclusion herself. Professionally, Gigi is an odin laryngology head, neck surgeon, and an assistant professor at the University of Manitoba. Born in Winnipeg to immigrant parents from the Philippines and India, Her mother encouraged her strength and independence, while her father inspired her to become a physician. In practice since 1998, she has worked to balance life as a surgeon, wife, and a mother. As the 2021 Federation of Medical Women of Canada president, she serves as a role model and a leader for the medical profession and influences medical women across Canada. In 2018, when she was the Canadian Medical Association president, She led the development of the CMA's first ever policy on equity and diversity. She also has leadership roles with the Canadian Medical Forum, the Virtual Care Task Force, the Canadian Society of Odin Laryngology, Head and Neck Surgery, and the International Federation of ORL Societies. Dr. Osler is the recipient of numerous honors and awards, including the University of Manitoba Distinguished Alumni Award, the Association of Faculties of Medicine of Canada, May Cohen, equity diversity and gender award she has made WXN Canada's 2019 top 100 most powerful women list the medical post 2021 power list and was inducted into the government of Canada's women of impact in Canada online gallery in 2022 hi Gigi and welcome to the HQ
1: thank you very much Dale and uh good for you for trying to pronounce otolaryngology, head and neck surgery. Uh, and for everybody listening, Dale and I had this whole conversation. I, uh, I often introduce myself as an ear, nose and throat surgeon or ENT, uh, but Dale wanted to give it the, the full uh, version of the, the specialty. So thank you for doing it and you did a great job.
0: Thank you. <laughs> So, I mean, it really is a great honor to have you as a guest today, Gigi. Um, certainly when members of my team knew that I was going to be having this conversation with you today, they became very, very interested, um, and they, you have inspired so many of them and myself as well. So um, so maybe on that topic, um, I mean, you've been publicly described as a trailblazer for women and equity and diversity and inclusion. So perhaps we could start the conversation. What, what does this mean to you?
1: Well, first of all, thank you. and uh, I've, I'm always humbled when I hear that others consider me a, a trailblazer. And I really come to this position, to this space, to any work that I do with a lot of humility. And I'll, I'll tell you right now, I never set out to be a trailblazer but I think through circumstances, through opportunities, I have found myself fortunate enough to be in many positions where I have a platform and I am able to speak out on many of these issues in medicine that matter so much to a lot of people.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: I, I think in many ways, I am fortunate to be the right person at the right time with the right platform to speak out on some of the things that we've, you know, as a person of color, you've thought about, but maybe didn't really bring to the surface. And I think now, you know, in this era of uh, reconciliation, anti-racism, equity, I Mm -hmm. see medicine, I see healthcare, having more of these conversations than. Ever before. So ultimately, what does it mean to me? I'm deeply humbled. I see many of my colleagues in healthcare working hard to really advance equity, anti racism work, um, reconciliation. And I, I feel like I'm just a small part of that to keep bringing it forward. To keep it top of mind in a lot of the work that's being done in many different areas in medicine and healthcare, and fortunate to be able to have these conversations with clinicians, healthcare workers, and leaders of healthcare organizations, medical associations, um, so that we can continue to make this work part of everything that we do, especially as we look at the healthcare system right now and you know we see signs that it is not only under stress and strain but collapsing and human healthcare resources are more precious than ever before. So a lot of these conversations I think are needed to help support the healthcare workforce now and in the future.
0: Thank you. So, I mean, being a trailblazer by definition means sort of walking where others or a few others have walked before and, and sort of leaving marks, I guess, for others to follow. I mean, as comfortable as you are in, sh- in sharing yourself, um, I mean, what has been, or what have been some of the obstacles or challenges for you to walk along that path and get to this moment?
1: You know, that's a, a great question and, and one that I've thought of, and let me share you a couple of Stories. So honestly, I did not recognize or realize the importance of representation in leadership until after I was CMA president. And I had so many different people, and in particular women of color, come Mm -hmm. to me to say, They'd never seen anyone that looked like them in such an important national leadership position. And that because they saw me in that position, one day they thought they could see themselves in leadership positions. And it made them believe more in themselves. And, you know, I'm a little embarrassed to say it took me, you know, X number of decades old to be able to put all of that together and kind of go, oh, okay, I, I get it. Like I, I I understood, but I don't think I really understood uh, until then. And so it was probably, you know, around that time that I started to speak out on many issues of inequities in medicine. Mm -hmm. And I'm not um, naive enough to think I've not faced any barriers. There have been, but I think I'm also a bit of the personality that if there's a barrier in my way, instead of running up against it in my head, I go, okay, there's a barrier. I'm going to be like water, and find some way to flow around it and work around it to get past the barrier. And I always think of the privilege that I have currently. And so, yes, I am a a woman of color, Um, but, and here's the but, and this is my privilege check for myself, I'm a light skinned brown color
2: mm-hmm.
1: because within colors, there's differences in what color you are. Um, I'm Filipino, East Indian. So I'm sort of a Southeast Asian, um, which in healthcare, you see more Southeast Asians and perhaps other ethnicities. Mm-hmm. That gives me privilege. I was born in Canada, so I don't have an accent and that gives me privilege. Um, My parents were healthcare professionals. That gives me a lot of privilege. And so I'm fully cognizant, not only do, I may have barriers, but when I look at my career and what I've done, that's a privilege. And that opens doors for a lot of people. Uh, or That opens doors, you know, based on some of my past positions. And so as a, as a leader, um, I recognize that I have less barriers than others. And so part of what I really try to do is listen hard to Experiences and the stories of others, so that not only am I aware of my privilege, but I can see some of the other barriers that they face. So I can be aware of them to help bring about um, bigger and better change. And so, you know, Dale, I look at any barriers that I face, and I still think they probably are minuscule to a lot of the barriers that I see a lot of my colleagues face these days.
0: Yeah, and I think it's a, it's a good lesson as well, right, in t- understanding that our own position isn't the same experience that everybody has. Um, and for some, you know, the, the challenges that they face seem over, overwhelming, um, albeit different than those that are faced by others. So. I think what you're describing is, is your capacity, certainly for resilience and overcoming whatever those barriers may have been for you and how you frame them, I guess, in your own life. But, um, yeah, I agree. Um, what? So even though I guess with your own humility in terms of what your, your journey into coming to this point would be, do you have advice for others that may sort of identify as a marginalized person in terms of what they could do or how they might reframe things themselves in terms of to overcome the barriers that are in front of them?
1: I see a lot of hope in the conversations and discussions and change that is occurring in healthcare now. Because if I were to look back five years ago, we weren't having these conversations. We weren't talking about anti-Black racism or we weren't talking about anti-Indigenous racism. We weren't talking about gender inequalities. We weren't talking about reconciliation. A lot of those conversations now are not only being had, but national organizations, healthcare organizations are making commitments to advancing um, a lot of equity movements, reconciliation movements than I've ever heard before. So I, I would say, first of all, don't lose hope. I see hope for the future. I see hope because I see leaders, I see organizations, I see grassroots healthcare workers talking about this, saying this is important. We must continue to advance this. And ultimately, I think we must continue to advance this in healthcare because the end user of healthcare are people, are patients. And if we can create a healthcare system and a culture that is more inclusive, feeling of better belonging for all healthcare workers to allow them to bring their most to work, a healthcare workforce that is more diverse. And especially as Canada diversifies as a population, we need a healthcare workforce that can understand and can bring that knowledge and that experience of the different experiences of the diversity of the Canadian population. So ultimately, I think the, the end goal should be, we want to make equity, diversity, inclusion, belonging, and reconciliation into our system Mm -hmm. not just for those of us as healthcare workers in the system, but ultimately to better serve the needs of Canadians. So don't lose hope. I would also say to anybody who feels like they don't fit the norm of the healthcare workforce that they see, um, and I'll, I'll say as an aside, in medicine, I see more diversity in medical school classes than I've ever seen before. So Mm -hmm. I I think if we continue to be intentional about it, we'll see that throughout organizations or leadership. Uh, But but my second message would be to be proud of who you are and what you have accomplished and know that you belong here. I hear stories about how sometimes people, and I'll I'll speak from the physician um, side of it, uh, sometimes don't feel like they belong in medical school or in a certain residency program because they don't fit that norm. You belong, I mean, you belong even more so because of the barriers that you've overcome, because of the hard work that you've put in. So know that you belong and knowing that you belong, final message, take up space. You know, sometimes if you don't feel like you belong, you try to make yourself small, mm-hmm. and you don't ask questions. Now, sometimes that depends on the culture that you're working in. But I think if you have a feeling like, this is a space where I belong, take up that space, you know, take up your rightful place at that board table or in that residency program, um, know that you belong and take up your rightful space.
0: Well, oh, that's, that's why people are inspired by you, Gigi, so thank you for that. <laughs>
2: um,
0: so, I mean, publicly, I mean, certainly from those in power and, and you know, we certainly heard it from even uh, some of our leading politicians over the years. Um, you know, there are cr- critics that would defend that we don't have institutionalized racism and discrimination in our country. And I can assume part of the reason they challenge that is because of their own sensitivities of being wrong or being abusers of that. But, I mean, what does that mean to you? I mean, how do you answer that? And and maybe how do we get past that? Or, or how do you challenge them to think about it differently?
1: I, I think we are slowly starting to get past that. And as institutions, I am seeing... Changes. So, not only acknowledgments of past harms, of colonial, patriarchal practices, or not practices, structures embedded within our organizations. um, I'm seeing positive movement. And so, I always want to give credit to my home university, so the University of Manitoba Faculty of Health Sciences. Um, Through the leadership here, we have a policy on anti-racism within the faculty, which is remarkable. And I think there's another university that has also adopted an anti-racism policy. And uh, when I first read it, I was really impressed. And what impressed me a lot about it was the fact that if a learner, say, comes to you to say they've experienced racism there doesn't need to be an investigation there doesn't need to be a, well hold on maybe that wasn't racism let's investigate it further
2: mm-hmm.
1: if an indigenous student comes to you and says you know what i'm being just you know i'm i'm experiencing racism on a daily basis this is how you believe them and it, it, it's a remarkable policy because it outlines that and so i'm seeing some positive steps towards institutions recognizing that it, it occurs and that structural racism, institutionalized racism um, is real. And I think you just have to listen and understand and accept what people and organizations are saying. And I think we have reports in you know, the In Plain Sight report out of BC Uh, Mm -hmm. talks about it and and lays it out so there is evidence saying that it is structural that it is institution institutionalized and I agree with you I think framing it as it, it, it is structural it is within the institution telling folks many of whom may not be um fully aware you know certain i can certainly i can say in my medical school training and my residency um, we didn't learn any of this so training has evolved and now training curricula is much more culturally sensitive culturally aware i'm not excusing it i, I think as as adults we should all be aware of um, current practices, systemic racism, that we, we can't put blinders to it. But I, I, I think what gets people's backs up and makes them defensive is that sometimes people will respond to say, well, I'm not racist. and feel like it's being um, directed at them as an individual, mm-hmm. to which I would say, Um, we, all of us, and I will say that even for myself, always have to approach these conversations with uh, an openness, a willingness to learn, um, a humility in that perhaps I did say or do something, that was not. That was inappropriate. That was hurtful. That was racist. To accept that maybe I did do that, and to be willing to learn, to listen, and to change. And that's something we can each do, as individuals. Um, and so it's it's a it's a It's an interesting time because I think where organizations might find some inertia is that you do hear feedback sometimes like, it's too much. This is an agenda. I'm not racist. I don't know what you're talking about. We don't need this. There's enough women in medicine. Um, mm-hmm. those people don't need it as organizations. I think we have to be prepared to hear that, to know how to handle it, and to really encourage all of the individuals working in healthcare to try to listen, learn, and commit to change. because. That has to come from us. We we can't rely on the people who are being um, marginalized, who are facing the discrimination, the ill effects. We can't rely on BIPOC individuals, marginalized individuals to do the work. Mm -hmm. I think it's up to us to do the work and to listen, learn and commit
0: to the change. Yeah, and I think even listening to the different stories that you've shared so far, I mean, I reflect on my own earlier academic life, um, you know, and my background is in English literature. So I'm in a very different place here, certainly in healthcare, but, but, you know, we took courses on, you know, critical theory and critical thinking Um, And as part of that, there was an understanding that we all had to better understand the our own subjectivity that we would bring when we explored texts right that we were always bringing with us all that little baggage. Um, And so that me as a white man coming from whatever my family story was going to be changed the way I would interact with that. What I heard from the beginning of your story is that you reflected on your own privilege and that you've gone through a similar sort of journey in terms of understanding who you are and and what you bring to the table in all of those stories, um, and that that may be missing, I guess, in some of these other examples where. Uh, Intentionally or otherwise, and again, it, that's probably the important word, right? Is that people don't intend sometimes to be racist, right? And that becomes that in that defensiveness. Um, but a person's experience, I think, as you're describing in the university, is still their experience. Um, and so you're divorcing those two things, I guess, in some respect, and asking us to sort of reflect on who we are um, and that and the impact that we have on others. Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, you, you'll see, and I'm sure you've heard, there's uh, an implicit bias it test. It's available online. Um, it might be the Harvard implicit it, bias mm-hmm. test. Mm-hmm. And they've got different um, areas and you can do the test. Like I think some was race. Anyways, um, I did it. I was asked to do it prior to attending a uh, retreat. And it, it's an interesting Test to do because we all have biases. We do. And we may be unaware of our biases, hence the implicit bias or unconscious bias that people talk about. But even having done that implicit bias test myself, um, I had a small skew towards whiteness. And I kind of went, okay. And doing those types of unconscious or implicit bias testing can help make you aware of your own implicit or unaware biases so that as you're um, going through your daily life, uh, as you're having interactions with, patients, with other people, with colleagues, once you're aware of your own unconscious biases, then you can kind of go, oh, okay. Recognize and then readjust your reaction or your conversation or your thinking. Um, so I, I look at that and I, I thought, you know, I'm really, like, I, it, I was surprised, but uh, I just think that is, the product of my age, my generation, and the teaching.
0: Mm-hmm. And to, and would you say perhaps to some degree even the profession?
1: Probably to some degree. So, um, you know, I have a slide that I use in uh, presentations that I give. And your listeners, if you've ever heard me give a presentation on um, equity or EDI. You, You've probably seen it. And I'm not (laughs) gonna apologize because it's actually one of my favorite slides. And so that's, hence I use it in a few different presentations. And um, it was made when I was CMA president. And so I had asked staff to make the slide for me. And it is uh, pictures, so headshots of all of the CMA presidents from 1867 in the top left-hand corner down to 2018 when I was president in the bottom right-hand corner. So Mm -hmm. it is, don't make me count, hundred and, no, I know this number, 151 tiny little photos starting in black and white, you know, back in 1867, uh, ending with myself. And, I think I love that photo so much because you look through it and it, in the beginning, it's just row and row and row and row and row row and row of men
2: mm-hmm.
1: and if you go to and, you know until it gets to me and i I, I highlight it because i was the, I was the eighth woman and when you walk through different hospitals or um, Universities, and you see the rows of leaders, you know, different presidents, different chair people, uh, and you walk through, and you don't think about it, but it imprints on you subconsciously. Oh, those are the leaders, and when you see a, a woman or a person of color, or an indigenous leader or a black leader, then you kind of go, oh, and you realize, oh, that is different and so then for me that was a bit of a bias interrupter seeing my little photo recognizing oh you know in 151 years I'm the first woman of color oh so uh, I agree with you I think it does uh, interrupt your your patterns of thinking a little bit and it is a bit of a bias interrupter as well Mm -hmm. uh, in medicine to start to see it and think about it
0: Hmm. Uh, so I have so many more questions I want to ask you, but I think otherwise I I will end up with a two hour conversation. So in the interest of time, I will move on, but uh, (laughs) I'll try to
1: be more concise. (laughs)
0: That's okay. It's, it's very, uh, it's thought provoking, um, which I think is hopefully will work for others as well. Um, but, So we we, you've talked about it a little bit, and you know, so there's that interplay between the individual and the organization, and we've talked a lot about our own individual capacity for bias, and I guess, and um, perhaps empathy, and and just being able to sort of see things differently. But where does the organization come into this? Because it's not a sentient, you know, entity. but you know, so I guess it's maybe my question is: so where does organization take on this role, of, especially in the context of when we're talking about institutional behaviors or structural um, stigma or structural um, uh, racism or any of the other things that we 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 create in our organizations, and then the role of culture within that that you also allude to.
1: Mm-hmm. So. Uh... I'll, I'll start with telling you. I think a few years ago, when I started to have these conversations about EDI, so equity, diversity, inclusion. And I love the fact that I'm starting to hear that more as well. You know, it's EDIA, or I've heard EDII, so inclusion and indig- indigeneity, uh, mm-hmm. or reconciliation. But I'll share with you when I started having these conversations a few years ago, it really was gender specific, and binary as well. So male, female. Mm -hmm. But as I think the conversations have evolved, as our thinking has evolved, I'm hearing these EDI conversations take a much broader approach, which is good. And so I think in, in all of this work, in our thinking, in the work that individuals and organizations do. Take an intersectional approach, because there are different layers and intersections of inequity. Have an approach that is history aware. Mm
2: -hmm. So
1: aware of the history of um, immigration to Canada, what different groups are experiencing. Islamophobia, um, Black history in Canada. Uh, Some people may not be aware that we had slavery in Canada, um, that it's not been all uh, a bed of roses for Black people in Mm -hmm. Canada. And certainly a a history of um, understanding Canada's colonial history. Residential schools, reconciliation, and at least an understanding of well, what are the calls to action in TRC. So that's what I mean by history aware. I think approaches need to be data informed, and we can talk more about that, mm-hmm. um, as well as approaches that are culturally safe and humble. And I think you can use those. Broad approaches for both individuals as well as for organizations. Um, What else can be done? You know, specifically from an organizational point of view, quantify the inequities. And um, there's a management saying, right? We measure what we treasure. Are we, are we even measuring? The things that we want to change. So are we quantifying the inequities within your own staff, within your organization? You know, do you even know the demographics of your organization? How many um, disabled individuals do you have working? How many black individuals do you have working for you? How many indigenous in- individuals do you have working for your organization? If you're a representative organization, do you know those numbers or your members or the people that you serve? Um, you know, Are there inequities in uh, funding, promotion, compensation? So starting to quantify and measure your organization, the data and the inequities. So quantifying, get some numbers. Second, leadership. Mm -hmm. Uh, leadership is important. And to really make EDII, EDIA, EDIAR work meaningful, we need leadership that is supportive, committed, intentional, and ideally diverse and representative. And so, that is something because I think leaders set the tone, and leaders can help change culture. And I often talk about medical culture being um, really one of uh, bravado and swimming with sharks. And you know, it's, you, you just got to you know, pull pull your your big girl and big big girl. I shouldn't say that. You put on your underpants, you pull it up, and you get to work, which is. Um, and a culture I think is something we, we are all a part of. And you know, for me, culture is something that I define as, you know, that's the way we do things around here. Well, leaders have a significant role in changing culture and mm-hmm. setting um, that organization and the people on the right path. So quantify, so get some numbers. leadership. Three, identify the resources that are needed. So especially within organizations the people use it, because resources are going to be needed. We can't continue to ask people to work on measures and work on initiatives off the side of the desk. And are there human resources that are needed? Are there financial resources needed? And are organizations willing to commit to both the financial and human rights resources needed? Look at our policies. Are your policies supportive of, um, not just equity, inclusion, and diversity, but of culture. Um, you know, if I look at, say, working parents, working let's let's take working women in medicine. Are are the policies supportive of women who want to have a family and take time off? If they are, you know, if they're flexible, if there's um, flexible policies that allow um, people to t- take time off for looking after parents, looking after children, Um, are policies um, flexible in terms of allowing people to shift their schedule depending on the needs that they have to do to look after other people in their life, those policies benefit not just women, but Mm -hmm. everybody that works in that organization. So policy is important, but policy is useless unless you've got the right culture. So I think the two go hand in hand. Um, You know, what are the opportunities? We often talk about mentorship for different groups and mentorship's important, but what's needed more is sponsorship. So actively working with people who have not had access to positions, power, and privilege. How can we actively support them and get them into these roles? And then finally, is, a process for ongoing assessment of the policies and the initiatives. Are they having the impact that you want them to have? Or are they having the opposite effect? So, you know, how are you measuring the success of whatever initiatives you have? How are you measuring the impact? And then, you know, almost like a quality improvement process changing what needs to be changed, letting it go, and then you get into that um, cycle where you are consistently improving.
0: Yeah, and certainly uh, my mind went there as you were describing that, that this is a, um, to some degree a, a PDSA cycle that you're describing, mm-hmm. but a number of other important uh, pillars that support the sort of the improvement process. Um, and I think that a lot of it is about you know, like you're saying, being intentional and and prioritizing this. So it's not just something that happens um, in a tokenistic sort of way, right?
1: And I'll say, you know, I know I'm talking a lot, but I will say the work cannot fall on um, BIPOC individuals themselves. You know, Mm -hmm. I, I hear this consistently from my colleagues, they are exhausted. On top of the pandemic and the work and the stress related with the pandemic, over the last few years, we have been more aware of the need to advance EDI initiatives. And so on top of the pandemic and regular life, more people, more BIPOC individuals are being asked to take this on. um, And we we cannot continue to to do that because they're, they're even more than exhausted. If they're underrepresented now, they're being asked to take on more work. Is that work compensated? If it is, great. But often that work then gets put onto their already busy schedule mm-hmm. and has to be done in the evenings, weekends, taking time away from everything. So, you know, finding ways to do this work that is culturally informed, culturally aware, culturally safe, inclusive, but without. Overtaxing and overburdening the individuals who should benefit from it, but are already overworked to begin with.
0: Yeah, and and, and it's a certainly a narrative I've heard myself from a few different you know uh, groups and individuals, um, you know, because it's it's not theoretical for some of them, right? I mean, this is their lived experience, um, and so. Um, there is a requirement, I think, for us to be sensitive. And, and yeah, if, we, if we're really committed to doing some of this work, then we just need to get on with it too.
1: Yeah, and sometimes asking you know, individuals who have been historically marginalized to take on this work can be harmful uh, because they're doing the work and sometimes the feedback that you get and the pushback that you get and the responses that you get uh, can be harmful. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, making sure that the work can be done without causing further harm uh, is really important to make sure that's built in.
0: Yeah, so so Gigi, you've talked a little bit about the benefits to organizations, um, right, you know, about why EDI um, should be adopted. So, I mean, so let's explore that in a bit more detail um, Mm -hmm. as opposed to just you know, focusing on the challenges and why it's hard and right and the impact on individuals. But really, how is this going to change healthcare, care and, and what's the impact it's going to make in, a, in, a, in the world that we live in? Why is it important?
1: So, you know, I think we can look at it from a few different ways. And so let me let me tackle that from a few different angles. I think firstly and most importantly, if we look at um, who is served by healthcare, it people patients are served by healthcare. And there is growing evidence in the, I'm gonna speak for medicine, so medical academic literature, suggesting or showing that increased diversity can benefit patients' health and patient outcomes. Uh, I'm seeing data, I'm seeing studies showing and supporting that certainly in terms of gender, Mm -hmm. And in particular out of the United States, seeing some in terms of race. So black physician, black patient, white physician, black patient, which is really interesting because that potentially is a way to improve health and health outcomes without investing billions of dollars into our healthcare system, without putting pressure on Uh, the federal governments and provincial governments and territorial governments to work together. That change is literally something we could do as healthcare professions. So if we look at what are the benefits of equity, diversity, inclusion, I think ultimately it it would benefit patients. And I think in Canada, we are seeing that in terms of some of the reports coming out about the uh, effects of indigenous racism on health outcomes. Second, if we look at it from a healthcare provider perspective, and we've talked about culture a few times, Mm -hmm. if we can achieve a medical culture that is healthy and more supportive, Where people feel safe in different environments, where they don't feel out of place, like they can't speak up, where people have a sense of belonging. I think we then have a better culture that is more supportive, that will help provide individuals with more resilience so that they're less likely to feel burnt out because they've got, they know they're working with a team or in a department or in a setting where everybody's got their back. In this two and a half years of the COVID-19 pandemic, I think finding as many strategies as we can to help support workers, Mm -hmm. to help with the burnout that we're seeing in the profession, everything we can do is needed and helpful. So, I think bringing in EDI, making a lot of these work and training environments safer, more culturally um, appropriate, accepting, uh, can give people more of that sense of belonging and feeling like it's an inclusive workplace. This is a place that I, I want to continue to work in. Um, and so, you know I think the onus is, to do it not only for the healthcare workforce, but to look at the benefit to Canadians and to patients as well. So I'd I'd, I'd look at it from from both the both angles.
0: Yeah, but the the two massive sort of opportunities for sure, right? Um, and yeah, I think we certainly have talked a lot on. The podcast about the challenges in terms of our health workforce and and looking for solutions and and I think what you're you're certainly describing that if we create an inclusive space, then right we can also prevent more people wanting to leave healthcare as well, right? Mm-hmm. So
1: yeah, and and it, change occurs in small increments, and then it speeds up and changes faster. And then sometimes it happens all at once. So, you know, I, I think it is a lot of these small changes and small steps that we do every day. And you know, I know I know this is a podcast, and I'll I'll share with our listeners that um, on my Zoom name, after Dr. Gigi I start to include my pronouns,
2: mm-hmm.
1: which I've I've had people come up to me and and thank me for that. So not just on Zoom meetings, but um, even if I'm giving a presentation, I'll introduce myself and I'll include my pronouns. And it's not a big thing, um, but it's a it's a small step to I how I identify myself and. I'm sure you've seen it more and more mm-hmm. in Zoom meetings and email signatures. Um, it's a small step, but I think it's, I, I think it's needed. I think it, every small step, every little change we do has some meaning. And so I think if we look at change that is big, it can get overwhelming. And that's where inertia often settles in. Do yeah. Think um, if we all start to tackle it one little bit at a time, it makes it seem less overwhelming. And if we start with those little small steps, hopefully we can get to that stage where it happens faster and faster and then all at once.
0: Yeah. Well, there's certainly a lot of moving parts to it and a lot of different things. But yeah, I think as you're focusing on what's within our own span of control mm-hmm. and ability to influence, um, and we will certainly, in, in one of our next episodes, be having a conversation around you know, gender equity and, and things like you've been describing. So, but I, I mean, you also have been talking about, you know, the incremental changes and things that we've been able to see. So, I mean, we can certainly reflect on, you know, what we've seen over the last generation. Let's just say it's certainly you know, what, you know, what we can all sort of identify. And we've seen a change in terms of our workforce, perhaps to some to see it, you know, more diversity, seeing it more in the classrooms, I think, as you're describing as well. Um, but I think many would still argue, and, and I know in our own organization and on and, and board tables, right, that the, as you start to climb, right, the, the ladder, so to speak, right, in the hierarchies of our organizations, right, it starts to, that diversity, you know, peters out. Um, and so I, I have a sense of why that is, but, but maybe you can answer from your perspective why that is, and, and maybe, you know, what more there is to be done to sort of change that.
1: Yeah. And, and let me start by saying, I don't think I have all the answers, but I can share my thoughts and my perspectives. And, you know, sometimes it is, um, That in-group or in-kind bias, where people look around to say, "Well, so and so's retired. Who are we going to get to retire, or who are we going to get to replace so and so?" And so you look around your network, and you know who do we know that could do that. And um, you can wind up, if you have that same in-kind bias in terms of, "Okay, well, that's what we need. That's that's who we need to replace so and so." Um, You get that group think and you mm-hmm. don't start to uh, bring in that um, diversity because you just don't see it you don't think it you don't see it and that's where having a change in process to bring in that diversity so you, Create a structure and a process that says, "Okay, um, we need a new um, VP. What are we looking for? What are the qualities and the characteristics?" And this is where, and I've been at some tables where people have argued, "Well, why is diversity important?" And you know, we just need to find you know somebody who can get the job done. Well, the meritocracy is a bit of a myth. Um, you know, who judges? What is merit? What is merit? You know, what are the criteria that we're using? What's the rubric that we're using? And if we continue to use the same criteria and the same rubric,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: that will automatically not even consider different groups of people. So, not only do I think we as individuals need to break our own uh, biases, we do need to bring in some processes and structure that will uh, open up opportunities for different groups of people who may have been historically uh, marginalized, not applicable, not even thought of having said that, I think as organizations being transparent about it being able to communicate that. And you see that more. I've seen that more with different um, job opportunities, openings where it will say, you know, minorities, you know, women, people with disabilities, um, gender fluid individuals, all encouraged to apply. So that's interesting. So I think communicating those opportunities and being very intentional in how you communicate those opportunities, expanding. Beyond our traditional networks, um, is also a, a way to get more diversity into different positions and different and into the workforce and into the leadership positions.
0: Yeah, and I think coming back to one of your earlier um, recommendations around sponsorship, I mean that creates that intentional sort of opportunities and and I think you know, in another conversation I've had on this topic as well, which will follow, um, right, those recruitment processes themselves, I think, in some ways, you know, arguably are part of those structural um, institutional biases, limiters, right, you you know, they discriminate. Um, And that for those that don't have the privilege of perhaps being raised in a way that knows how to navigate that Right, it then limits those then that can mm-hmm. get through that door, even find the door.
1: Mm-hmm. And so, you may be eminently qualified, but if you don't have the right network, you might not hear of this opportunity, um, and so you might not even know about it or even think to apply because you might not you know, think, "Oh, that's not something I'll ever get."
0: So, maybe I think you know, we can maybe just take this in another way as well. So um, you know, you've talked about the, you know, the, the groupthink sort of approach to things that, you know, which happens in the lack of, you know, a lack of diverse people um, in a room. So I, I guess what I'm, one of the things that I'm struck by, and I've certainly observed it for several years, right? Is how many organizations, how many healthcare organizations have put privilege on the word innovation? right? They stick it right in their mission statement. They put it in their value statements, right? Innovation is about who we are, right? And then you end up with a bunch of the same people sitting around the room. Um, So it strikes me that those two things are contradictory in terms of their their aspirational values, and Mm -hmm. then the people who are there to execute them.
1: Mm -hmm. And and that's, falling on the individuals as well, right? And, you know, sometimes we fall back to our tried and true patterns. And so, you know, you're absolutely right. Like we can put together the most inspirational, aspirational um, policies, um, but unless we, as people, as individuals, as leaders and organizations are intentional and committed to it, we we really won't achieve um, what what we should be achieving, and you wind up with tokenism.
0: Yeah, do you. I mean, because you sit around board tables and and spaces of power and influence yourself. So, do you think that there is a certain kind of a, th- a threateningness about having people sit in those spaces that are not? like the others or um, or is that changing as well
1: a threateningness to to whom
0: um, to those that sit around the table I guess um, that are already there
1: ultimately we're talking about power right mm-hmm. and having uh, a seat at that board table means you ha- you have a seat at the power table and any change where um, perhaps, Individuals will be different, or maybe your position at the table might not be guaranteed, um, is a threat to your power. And so that's where I think this change gets difficult. We put together great policies, we want to do things. Um, and I'm not saying people at board tables are power hungry and clinging to power, <laughs> but it it is a recognition that um, things are shifting and, and things are changing. And you know I, I, maybe I'm not gonna automatically requalify for that board position because now the competition's even greater. Oh, that, that is a recognition that, oh, maybe my access to power is gonna be challenged a little bit. So I, I understand where that comes from um but to achieve these greater goals of edi it will require shifting of power it will require those of us who have access to privilege to those tables of power it will require us to share it and to intentionally shift it and and that's I think Dale what you're describing just in terms of you know sometimes the tables wind up looking like the same tables as last year Mm -hmm. Um, it 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 does um, take allyship and so I've seen that before with different leaders of different organizations allying in lifting up other people who don't have access to those positions who have said, you know, I'm going to step, I'm going to step off this panel, you know, because I think we need to bring on um, a a different individual. I've spoken at these panels for far too long. Um, It's time to lift someone else up and give them an opportunity. Um, And so that's an act, not just a allyship but sponsorship as well know, creating Mm -hmm. opportunities for others so to create this change we really do need to continue working on both the organizations the policies the processes the structure but as individuals um, that may be where we find the stickiest um, points where you know we can create Incredible policies on anti racism and inclusivity. But if we're not moved as individuals and as leaders to be intentional about that change, to sometimes, you know, meaning I don't get to be on that board or get that position, um, or sometimes to step away, it will take longer to achieve the goals and objectives than if we were to actually commit as individuals to. Um, enacting the change that's needed.
0: You did a, a great job of summing up what I was going to try to say. Uh, so, <laughs>
1: <laughs> yay! <laughs> um,
0: but yeah, I, I think sort of weaving back, to, you know, that you've from the beginning where you've talked about is that the intentional side, the individual capacity, right? Um, and that that's where the change is going to continue to happen. But I do and that self-awareness, I think, in terms of your own privilege and, and capacity to open doors for others, right, looking back, not just forward, um, and helping others to sort of engender that change mm-hmm. that you're looking for.
1: And, and I will say, you know, this is hard work, and having these conversations and making this change is hard. And so, you know, for leaders and for organizations to not just Anticipate um, inertia, pushback, discomfort, um, expect it. It will be there. And and that is, I think, part of um, our human nature. So know that it, it will be there. Recognize, and how will you as an individual or an organization have those uncomfortable conversations? And you know I, I've got a great colleague here in Winnipeg and I'm gonna give a shout out to Dr. Marsha Anderson who is just one of, and I'm sure healthcare Ken uh, knows Dr. Anderson, but she will say, and I have seen her on a stage and she'll preface her presentation to say, what I'm gonna talk about, what we are going to talk about will make you uncomfortable. And that's okay. Your discomfort is needed because we have to have these conversations. We have to make some of these change changes because ultimately the health of you know my family, my cousins, my relatives, of indigenous people in Canada is suffering because of the current system. So know that it's going to be, and I'm paraphrasing, but know that it is going to be uncomfortable, but to recognize it, sit in it, because it's only through that discomfort will we start to move forward. Because if we sit there and we're not uncomfortable by it, either we don't really understand it, we're not really listening, and then we're not really gonna be committed to any change. So it is uncomfortable conversations. It is difficult work. Um, but again, that's where I think we as individuals need to be willing to listen and learn, sit in the discomfort and change.
0: Yeah, the humility too, that we not, we don't have it all right already. And mm-hmm. there's a desire to, to make things better for us. Um, so, maybe just, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of inspiration in those words as well, but I just, maybe as a final, um, you know, ask to you, Gigi, before we sort of close things off here, um, you know, what would you ask of an organization like Healthcare Can and and our membership in terms of the work that we could do ahead? What would be your instruction or your ask of us and or of any individual who's listening to this that could take that torch and make mm-hmm. a difference? So, those last words to you.
1: Uh, I should have ha- I should have been deeper in my thinking, but <laughs> I, I you know, I think I've said it uh, a few times and you know, I think this work is incredibly important and incredibly meaningful not only to the healthcare workforce, so the people who work in healthcare, but ultimately the people who receive healthcare, regular people, Canadians, patients. So if we continue to think that this is important work that must be done, it must be done because it benefits the people that work in healthcare as well as the people that receive it. And so that's why I think we must continue to keep moving equity, diversity, inclusion work forward. We must continue to work on the racism in healthcare towards providers and patients. uh, When we must commit to reconciliation, because it's not just about us as leaders or in the organization, it is about the people who work in healthcare and the people who receive it, everyday Canadians.
0: Thank you. You're
1: welcome. So
0: I will say, well, thank you again. Um, It's been a pleasure having this conversation with you, and maybe we'll have a chance to talk about something else in the future again, but I wish you well, and uh, thank you for being a guest today.
1: I'm delighted, always honored and humbled to be on, and thank you for listening.
0: Thank you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The HQ, and I'm Dale Sherbeck, your host. You can find this and other future episodes on the CHA Learning website, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. We'd love to hear what you think, so please follow us on our other social media channels. Thanks for joining us in this discussion today. Please join us next time.